what's the most important next step? It's kind of as simple as that. You know, it's very overwhelming to think, oh, what do I need to do to scale to my first 10,000 a month in cash flow? Or how do I build a million dollar business? It's like people get so overwhelmed with the product without just taking the most important next step. Once you accomplish that next step, take a breath. What's the most important next step after that? And then you just kind of piece one after another. It's like a staircase. Yeah. That's so good. Because I think, you know, if, if something takes 10 steps and you're looking at all 10 in order to, to, to get to that end goal, it's like, dude, it's overwhelming. You're not going to jump 10 steps at once, no. you know, so you got to just take it, take it one at a time. Welcome to the Rich Summers Report, where we talk real estate, business, and wealth building all while keeping it real. No fluff, no BS. I hope that you enjoy the show. All right, guys, welcome to another episode of The Report. Today, I got someone who's changing the short-term rental space. I got my man, Michael Elefante. Michael, welcome to the show, brother. Rich, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, man. Appreciate you coming out, dude. Um, I've heard so much about you um, through a lot of other folks that have been on the podcast and um, excited to to finally connect in person. So thank you for uh, taking the time, man. Yeah, man. Likewise. I know it's been uh, probably like six months when we first connected. So glad we could finally make it happen. Yeah. Um, I'm surprised you were not out here for uh, Patrick's event, uh, the STR Nation event here on Monday, Tuesday this week. I know. I know. I was bummed I missed it. I yeah. was, had a little FOMO seeing everyone's, <laughs> seeing everyone's posts. Looked like a great a great time. Yeah. There was a few folks in town. Like I know Avery Carl was out here. Um, the team and I, we went over there yesterday, uh, did a little boutique hotel investing panel. Um, but it was always cool to see a lot of the folks in the space because, you know, like you see a lot of them on social media and through different podcast channels and that sort of thing. But for the most part, everyone is kind of spread out throughout the country. So it's kind of cool to, uh, you know, see people when they are in town. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Are you going to do uh, the Bigger Pockets conference in October here in uh, Orlando? I might. I don't know. My wife and I have been traveling a lot. So and I'm a little bit of a homebody. So it takes a lot for me to get out. But um, I have never been to a Bigger Pockets conference or any of their meetups and i have a lot of mutual connect connections there and i'm sure it'd be a lot of great people there so where's the uh where's your favorite place that you guys have traveled to recently my wife and i just did two weeks in switzerland and austria traveling with a nine-month-old baby at the time so it was a it was a challenge but our little girl did great and we had a big time and lots of hiking lots of sightseeing um and then a couple of years ago, we when we finally quit our jobs, we do real estate full time. We traveled in a camper van for a year. No way. Yeah. So we wanted to do that before we had a kid. Did it with our two dogs, though, which is nuts. But we traveled, I don't know, the whole western half of the U.S. Did about 400, 400 or so miles of hiking, 20 plus national parks, and was just living the dream at the time. What's your favorite national park, would you say? Gla- Glacier. Glacier? Yeah. How come? Glacier has great views. It has ample hiking and it doesn't feel quite as crowded as like a Yellowstone does. And Yellowstone's great for, you know, views and whatnot, but, um, and it has a ton of wildlife. So you kind of get a mix of everything and it's also not scorching hot. So we were there in the summertime. We've been some other parks in Utah, which were a little bit warmer, still some great hikes, but Glacier's also big. So, um, yeah, it was just a beautiful place. I love that you guys are finding time to travel even with the, uh, the newborn. Yeah. Is that, is that challenging? You know, it is, but I feel like it's only limiting if you let it be. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely challenging, but it's still doable. Um, you know, you have naps and you have to feed the baby and do all sorts of things. The plane rides we thought were going to be a little more challenging, but she did great on those those longer plane rides. My wife's very well traveled though. She's been she's trying to do as many countries as her age, and she's almost kept up to that. I think she's been to like twenty nine or so countries. And okay. I'm not quite <laughs> at her level, but um. She gave me the travel bug when we first met several years ago, mm-hmm. and we've been traveling ever since as much as we can. 
there's a good app out there. I forget the name of it. Um, but you can like select all the countries that you visited and it, it, it's good to put you in perspective. So I've visited, I think 20 or 21 countries, but it says I've only seen 10% of the world. And so it makes me realize like, holy cow, there's so much of the world that I have not seen. And so in that, in that manner, it's kind of inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, so anyways, man, so tell us like a little bit about what you're doing in the space. I, I know, um, it sounds like you kind of grew up a little bit similar to myself, you know, work at my day job and that sort of thing. And then you, you switched over and realized, you know, the power of real estate investing. So tell me a little bit about what you, uh, you're doing today. Yeah. So today, um, I've kind of stumbled my way into entrepreneurship, a few different businesses, but it all started with the first short-term rental that we bought. My wife and I bought back in 2019. Um, once we got a taste of that cash flow and saw the potential in those properties, we were, we were all in. I think I heard somewhere that you also sold out of your 401k to get mm-hmm. started in real estate. We did yeah. the same thing for our, our first property. We basically had all our savings. I sold my truck to be able to furnish the property. Second one sold out of our 401k IRAs and um, we're all in at that point. Um, and then just kind of piecemealed each deal together. And today we have seven properties. Um, and usually they do between 70 and 125,000 a month in gross, gross rents. Um, and then since then, started posting a bunch of content on social media. Honestly, at first, didn't know what to come of it, but just sharing with people with, uh, what I was learning at the time and some of our success that led to people interested in coaching and mentorship. So, um, started a you know coaching and mentorship program, mastermind program, which has been awesome. And then I partnered with some of my past students on other businesses uh, as well. So we now we have a property management company, a design company. Um, and it's just been a whirlwind, but an awesome, an awesome ride the past several years. I love that. How did the uh, property management company come to fruition? Yeah, it's actually kind of funny. So one of the first ever people to buy um, a course from me, his name's Elliot Caldwell. Um, we connected because we were both uh, college athletes. He played baseball at South Carolina. I played at Elon University. Um, so hit off there. And he got a couple properties in the North Carolina mountains and then saw how well they were doing and then realized that a lot of the legacy property managers in that area specifically were doing a huge disservice to the homeowners. So he approached the neighbors and said, here's how much we're making. And they, they were in disbelief and they, they dropped their PMs like candy and came over to Elliot and he started more, more or less a co-hosting business. Um, so at, at the time, back in like 2020, I was doing some affiliate affiliate deals with various companies on my social media. Um, one was another property management company, had a good relationship with, just doing some content for them. And Elliot said, drop them for me. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't know you had a property management company. He's like, well, yeah, I mean, we're about to formalize it and um, call it home team vacation rentals. Are you in? And I was like, yeah, sure. So I think he had 20 or so properties at the time under management. And this is about a year ago. And within the past year, it has just been crazy. I think we've got to about 120 properties under management within the first nine months or so. And then we acquired a property management company down in Port Aransas, Texas, and that added another 115. And then today we're right around 300 properties under management, I want to say. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You guys are really pushing that. Um, I'm interested to dive in and learn more about, you know, how you guys scaled that so quickly. Um, But I'm curious, like going back, so you played baseball. Uh, What position did you play? Pitcher. Pitcher. That's, that's awesome, man. And you, what level did you get up to? Uh, I played baseball in college. I was at Division One baseball. Was hoping to play professionally. Um, you know, poured everything I had into that sport. And then once that, once that passion kind of came to a screaming halt, I had to figure out what I was going to do with my life. So mm-hmm. um, that's how I got into tech sales and hated it. And that's what led me to real estate. But uh, yeah, yeah. 
What was it about um, like that first retrimental in 2019 that, that you and your wife decided, hey, we're going to pivot and try this and, and cash out our 401ks? Because I know when I started, everyone told me it was too risky. Um, but I think what kind of got me past that point was I was listening to podcasts, I was reading books, I was going to networking events. And so I was around a lot of folks that were doing it. And so that's what ultimately gave me the confidence to kind of move forward. But, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of folks they go to their friends, they go to their family for advice. And unfortunately, they get talked out of doing stuff like this. And so I'm curious, like from you and your wife's perspective, what was that like? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I grew up in a great household. Both my parents are hard workers. My dad's a financial advisor. So very traditional from the investment standpoint, a little more conservative. My mom's been a nurse for forever. Um, so I didn't have, you know, necessarily so much so much backing, but I also didn't seek it because I didn't want to get pushback. I was nervous of getting pushback there. Um, I should have done more mentorship in groups and masterminds early on. That's something I regret and something I love doing now. Um, but I just talked with my wife and I honestly, it stemmed from like this idea of risk. We're always very risk averse to invest our money. But then we started to think, what is the risk if we don't invest our money? We're risking the next 40 or 50 years working jobs that do not bring us, you know, some intrinsic happiness. Mm. Um, just for the sake of making money and then living a great life. You know, for us, that wasn't the American dream. So we're like, we'd rather risk some money, especially early on before we have kids and a family and throw it at something like real estate and just see what happens. And we're so glad that we did. Yeah. I, um, I feel like there's always an opportunity cost, you know? And so sometimes you gotta ask yourself, well, what is the bigger risk? You know, um, you know, even if a deal goes south, uh, or it doesn't pan out the way that you wanted it to, well, there's always a lesson baked in there. And I think a lot of these things that we do, whether it's starting businesses or investing in real estate, you know, as long as you don't give up, you're going to eventually figure out a way to, to be successful in whatever path that is. Um, but if you don't ever get started or you give up early on, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's a bigger risk in my opinion. Yeah. You miss a hundred percent of the shots you don't take. Ooh, that's someone, so someone famous once said that. <laughs> <laughs> that's so good. Uh, so was it, was it more so you or your wife like early on was, it was me more so pushing, mm-hmm. um, pushing the idea of just real estate. And I, I did more of the, you know, initial research into like what type, what types of investments could we start in? Um, but she was always supportive and on board. And um, I think what was really critical and what I recommend to anybody who's in a relationship is you have to be aligned with your, your vision and your goals. Um, and it's not so much an, an, end, an end product or, or end amount of money that you want to get to. So for us, it was more like what lifestyle do we want? Like what what do we want our lives to look like in 5, 10, 15, 20 years with our kids and our family? And we wanted time freedom. Um, so we were very aligned on that vision together, which made it very easy and cohesive going in and into this day. Yeah. Uh, what in terms of like, did you guys have a, a lot of money in the 401k when you guys started? I think I had like only 35 or so thousand and she had about 80,000 in an IRA. She started very young, um, which was smart. Her mom got her got into IRA. She started working when she was a you know in, a, in her teens. So um, I think collectively we had call it one hundred and ten thousand or so, one hundred fifteen thousand or so. Okay, yeah. and so that's not a ton. Um, and so how did you flip that one ten into the seven properties? So our first property we had actually saved up for a few years because initially, like a lot of people, I thought. I need to work hard and save a ton of money to get started in real estate. I didn't think to like partner or raise money or anything like that. So we thought, okay, well, why don't we level up as much as we can? We both got into sales, started to earn a little bit more money without increasing our lifestyle. So we were able to save incrementally more money each year. 
Um, so we had enough money for that first property just out of pocket and our savings. And then I had some in stocks that I had sold. And then when we got into short-term rental, you realize, oh, to compete, you have to furnish this and design it mm-hmm. well. Yeah. I was like, we're out of money. So kind I, of sold, I sold my truck that I had just finished paying off, which which was sad to see it go. It was it was a great truck. But what was it? It was a GMC Sierra 1500. But I bought it when I lived in Texas. I just wanted to have like the big Texas whip. So mm. It was lifted, big tires, wheels, everything. It was a sick truck. Loved it. The big but, Texas whip. I haven't heard that yeah, one before. So it's I good. downgraded that, traded it in, got a check out of it, drove like this just beat up Honda CRV. Hated driving it, but loved every second of it because that helped us get the proper furniture and design to that first property to kind of sell the experience um, in Nashville. And then that second property, we sold 401k and IRA to get started there. And after that, it was just more of a snowball effect. We just kind of piecemealed each property together. That third one was a combination of some cash flow, savings from work again. Um, and then the fourth one, we partnered with someone 50-50 on. And then we did a cash out refi in our primary residence in Nashville, pulled out a chunk of money. Um, and then the ones after that, the next two to get to six were cash out refis on three of our investments, That two of which we did a decent rehab on. So it was almost like a pseudo burr mm-hmm. strategy. Um, there. And then the seventh was just a culmination of kind of other business income and cash flow that had just kind of snowballed. Dude, it's, it's crazy how it just snowballs so quickly, like myself included. So I had a little bit more than 110. I had about like 285 after like the penalties and all that stuff. And that was kind of my seed money to get started. But that was from an 11 year career where I was like maxing out my 401k every single year and getting the match and all that crap. And yes, it grows, but it doesn't really like, it's not going to like truly make you wealthy. Right. And, um, but even with that, I was like, okay, like I got enough money to do like apartment deal. Like I, I bought an 11 unit deal in Cincinnati for 350 grand. So I did that. I had a little bit of money to renovate it. And then I had like a little bit left over to where I could like JV in another apartment deal. And after that, like I was all my money and I was like, I wasn't even thinking that I could possibly grow and build like a sizable portfolio. But to your point, it's like, you know, things start snowballing, right? You renovate, improve the value of the first property, you do a cash out refi, pull some money out. Um, and then you go and like learn how to raise some private capital, learn how to take down a couple of deals. I got a couple of no money down loans. Those are my first two short term rentals that I still have today. And you start to piecemeal things together. You, you start to figure it out and you do whatever it takes to close these deals. And then you start adding value and then they start to, the eggs start to hatch, like what I like to call it. And now you're doing cash out refi, uh, you sell a couple of properties, 1031. And then next thing you know, it's like, okay, like you actually built a pretty cool portfolio from like a small chunk of money, you know, yeah. and it's all because you got creative when you needed to. Yeah. It just takes that first deal. You know, you'll, I think a lot of people get so over consumed with thinking they, have to be at 10 deals like out of the gate you know they think they have to know everything out of the gate holds a lot of people back held me back for several years from getting started and you talk to any entrepreneur any successful investor they just built up the courage sacked up and got that first property figured it out and Mm -hmm. then they learned so much through the process of doing and then the next deal they learn more and more and more and then eventually you just become very efficient at it but it's never i feel like even the Cardones of the world, you know, they probably are in a constant state of learning, learning new things, adapting to their environment and figuring out different ways to invest and grow their businesses. Yeah. Um, what would you say for someone that, you know, maybe was in your shoes, they had a full-time day job and they have a little bit of IRA or 401k money to invest. They want to build a sizable portfolio. They want to do this full-time. Would you say like quit your job, cash out the 401k and go all in? Or would you say build it on the side first? If you are a busy professional and don't have time to invest in real estate but still want to participate in the passive income and tax benefits, 
My team, Summers Capital, is buying a lot of boutique hotels right now. We source the deals, we renovate the properties, and we even do all the day-to-day management, making it truly hands-off for investors. If you want to learn more to see if we can help you, go to summerscapital.com slash invest to book a call with our team. Again, that's summerscapital.com slash invest. Now back to the show. I think building it on the side first. Um, If you asked me two years ago, I was so amped up about just quit your job as fast as possible. But when you have a decent income, that can really help fuel the growth of your investment portfolio. So unless it's completely draining you, if it's still doable to do both, I would hang on to that for, for a few years for as long as you can until you get to a point where you're at a minimum matching what you're making, if not two or three X just from you know your investments, and then you just go all in. Now, on the flip side of that, I will say once you leave your job and you have 100% of your focus over here, things start to grow even faster. So it's yeah. kind of a pick your poison, you know, there's mm-hmm. kind of pros and cons to both. Yeah. Like for me, I, I, I had about 80% of what I needed. Or I thought I needed, uh, on the real estate investing side in terms of like cash flow to quit my job. And for me, that was enough. And I was like, okay, let's do it. And then I made up that remaining 20% really quickly. And then, like you said, it starts to compound much faster because you're reallocating 40 hours a week into your new venture. From my case, it was like 56 hours a week. And so things start to really like snowball a lot quicker. But another, another thing to add about to your point is like, you know, when you're first getting into real estate investing, if you have, uh, if you have a good W2 income, you should go maximize and take advantage of all these, these low and no money down loans uh, that you can qualify for before you punch out. Yeah. You know, 100% you agree. Those. 100% agree. And I, I knew that too when I left my job. But when I went to get the next loan, you know, there you kind of learned about these different types of loans, more commercial style loans, DSCR loans. And there's, they're not as favorable to the investor as a conventional loan is. Um, so yeah, you're, to your point, I think it's definitely advantageous to, to be able to, to maximize as many of those types mm-hmm. of loans as you can. And, you know, those, those primary residence loans, uh, you know, a lot of folks say like, oh, you got to live in the property for a year, this and that. But, you know, most of those loans, the documents actually say like at the date of the signing, you have every intention to live on the property as a primary residence. Now, what happens after that, the banks know, the lenders know, like plans change, right? People go through divorces, they get uprooted, they get uh, relocated with their jobs um, and things happen. Um, and so I think as long as you have every intention to live in the property as a primary residence, when you sign that, that, that loan doc, whatever happens after, you know, the banks understand as long as you're making that, that debt service payment, um, and you're not going out and broadcasting it on social media and all that sort of stuff, you're probably gonna be fine. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think that's one of the beauties too, just segueing into short-term rentals. A lot of people get started by leveraging a secondary home loan. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that you are legally allowed to rent out the property when you're not using it yourself. You just have to report the rental income. I think if it's over 14 days rented per year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of a lot of conversation I hear or you know chatter that, oh, you have to use it six months or this many months. It's, it's just what you said. It's just you have the intent to use it as a second home. And I don't think it should be abused, but that's the beauty of short-term rentals is pick a location that hey, you want to go visit one, two, three times a year and then rent it out when you're not using it. And you can yeah. take advantage of an awesome, an awesome loan. That is a good loan product. So second, uh, I think it's called like a second home loan, 10% down. I believe they go up to like 700 and something thousand. Um, and I think the only caveat, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is that like you can't put a long-term tenant in there, but like how are they going to ever know anyways, even if you did True. do that? Yeah, that's the beauty of short-term. Right, you, know? you don't have to deal with that. Yeah. Um, and I always say like, 
you know, like from a lender's perspective, I was like, why would they ever want to get their client who's paying their mortgage, paying them cash flow every single month? Why are they going to want to get them in trouble? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And so I think as long as you're, you do have every intention to, to live on the property, if it's a primary residence, uh, and you don't go broadcasting it on social media, um, and you're making your debt service payments, you're going to be fine. Yeah. You know? For sure. I, I also hear like another thing, like, oh, people are like, oh, you have to live in the property for 12 months and then you can move out. No, plans I've never seen. I never seen how many how many people I know tons of people that, or even I've been in places where I had a job for I was planning on being there for years, and then within eight months I was I moved to a different city. Mm -hmm. You know, I was renting at the time, but if I were to had had a house, you know, yeah, they're not going to come. Well, and exactly, exactly right. I mean, even if you you bought a place and you lived there for four weeks, and then you got this crazy opportunity, or you got fired, and you got to go work somewhere in the East Coast or wherever, but you. You can't go now and you can't turn your place into a <laughs> right. Who's going to stop yeah. you, right? Yeah. You know? Um, so anyway, so you, you have the seven properties. You got the uh, management business. How did you guys grow the management business from what it was to 120? And then obviously you, you bought another management company. But how did you go from basically what it was to 120 properties in just nine months? Yeah, so it was a lot of word of mouth initially. And then a lot of just networking just in the areas that Elliot was invested in or I was invested in. Um, we had one or two smaller acquisitions, I'll call it, where there was co- small co-host business, 10 to 15 properties in a couple key markets. And it, social media helped. I mean, I have a pretty good following on, on Instagram and other, and other platforms. And I just put out a couple of posts that were interested in partnering or you know, scaling together or buying you out. And so I had several people reach out and they ended up coming on. One is like director of client communication now. So she brought over like 10 or 15 properties. So that was how we initially started to scale. Um, and then after that, we have a couple other ways. One was the acquisition, and that's how we doubled the portfolio kind of overnight, which, which is great. I think we're going to focus on that too, like small to medium-sized property management companies. And then we have a new product now that I'm selling, um, aside from the coaching business, for people that are higher income earners but are busy and they don't want to necessarily take the time. They want more of a done-for-you product. So we call it B&B Turnkey, which is amazing for them because we'll go hand select a plus properties and then Summerlet will design it and the home team will manage it at a discount on the back end for them. And it's amazing for home team because we get to basically hand select properties in markets that we know are, are great markets. Um, so it's the best of both worlds and we can help them pick a great property. Yeah, absolutely. And um, by the way, I love your content on your social. Uh, I suggest all the listeners to go shoot uh, Michael a follow at uh, Melafonte6. And... Um, you, you mentioned Summerlet Designs. They were actually in the podcast yeah, uh, not yeah. too long ago. How did you connect with them? So Bree and Jordan are amazing. Um, Summerlet's grown like crazy. I think it's coming up on the first year since we formalized the business. But Bree, her husband, Logan, actually Bree found me on TikTok probably in 2021 and sent it to Logan. They had two long-term rentals at the time. And Logan um, was very interested in short-term rentals. So he reached out and he was my first like active one-on-one coaching client. Um, and he is also happens to be my biggest success story. So him and Bree scaled to 10 properties in two years. And they typically do like 150000 a month and net about half that. Wow. In two years, which is nuts. And they were cash flowing like 400 bucks a month on their two long-term rentals. So he, they're all-in type of people, which I love. So we really meshed early on. And Bree designed their properties and then brought her friend Jordan in to design some. And she was a professional designer for, for, for a company out in Los Angeles. So... They started to take on properties and I would just feed them clients for, you know, like a kickback. And then November came around and I was like, hey, I think we should like formalize this business a little more. And they were all in on it. Um, 
So it's been amazing to partner with them. Bree and Jordan run the day to day and they do an incredible job. And I really help kind of funnel the business and just partner with them on, on the coaching side of things too. Yeah. I love Bree and Jordan. Uh, what was it about Bree's husband that, that made him the most successful one in the group? So like I said, he was, he was an all in type of person, but he is not someone who felt like he needed to know everything before starting. He's like a head first in the deep end kind of guy, mm. like immediately. So he's also one that was willing to pay for coaching immediately, kind of a no questions asked type of thing. He just wanted to have the support of someone who's done it before. And once he had the coaching and had the knowledge, he went and just crushed it. The second thing, though, is he didn't stop when he ran out of his own capital, when they ran out of their own capital. So they got their first one was actually an arbitrage deal in this random suburb of Salt Lake City. And they were all in like 18 grand and they were netting like 4,500 a month. Wow. Pretty insane return. That is know? insane. So then they, they in sold a suburb their, too. Yeah. They sold their two long-term rentals and then bought two or three more short-term rentals. And then once they were tapped on their own capital, they started partnering with people in my coaching community. Um, and I think he's partnered with two or three people on the rest of his properties. And I don't even know if they've used any of their own capital for this deal. So they've just figured out creative ways to structure it. They have somebody who's got money but doesn't want anything to do with the day-to-day. And so they find the property, set them up, and manage them. And yeah, it's just really cool to see see them scale in all facets. You know, arbitrage, buy, and then essentially co-host, manage, partner, all of it. Yeah, I love that. Um, to your point, though, about, you know, starting before you have all the answers, I think that's probably like the, the number one key to success from all the folks that I interview on the podcast and the folks that I connect with is like most people when they want to do something new, they have this thought process. Like one, they have an idea. Okay. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to do this idea. They have a target. And then, and then the second phase they go into is planning phase and they will wait for the plan to get perfect before they commit to that target. A lot of these successful people that I, I see, their thought process is different. One, they have the idea, okay, here's my target. And number two, instead of going into a planning phase, number two, they commit to the target. And then number three, they figure out how. And I think if you just flip number two and three, that's where you see the difference in the yeah. growth. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think Brandon Turner said this. I, I heard it from him first. What's the most important next step? And it's kind of as simple as that. You know, it's very overwhelming to think, Oh, what do I need to do to scale to my first 10,000 a month in cash flow? Or how do I build a million dollar business? It's like people get so overwhelmed with the product without just taking the most important next step. Once you accomplish that next step, take a breath. What's the most important next step after that? And then you just kind of piece one after another. It's like a, a staircase. Yeah, that's so good. Because I think, you know, if, if something takes 10 steps and you're looking at all 10 in order to, to, to get to that end goal, it's like, it's overwhelming. I mean, yeah. for myself, you're included. not going to jump 10 steps at once, no. you know, so you got to just take it. Take it one at a time. Yeah, for sure. One at a time. And and um, and it's like you don't have to take massive action. It's like just little consistent action every day over the course of 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, a whole year. And then you look back and you're like, I'm a whole different person. Yeah, you know, for sure. Yeah, you can kind of relate that to fitness, too. You know, I mean, you're yeah. not going to get in an in incredible shape overnight, you know, but if you do it, wake up every day consistent for a year, you're yeah. going to go back and be like, you may not notice a change in the mirror on any given day. But if you look at a photo from day one, you're going to be like, holy shit, look what I've done, accomplished. This is incredible. Mm -hmm. But you're right. It's that small, consistent action that builds up over time. Yeah. It's crazy how much like correlation fitness has with real estate and business. You know, with fitness, it's like, you know, your first 60 days in the gym, it's like you're grinding, you're dieting, and, and you're not going to see a ton of results, right? 
But then, you know, you keep doing it and you keep doing it 90, 120 days in. It's like, oh, people start complimenting you. Oh, man, you look great. And then now you start to, you know, see the results and you start to get addicted to that point. And the key is doing it long enough to where you get to that point. And same thing with real estate and business. It's like the first 60 days, 90 days, like you're doing all this stuff and you're learning all this information, but you're not making a lot of headway. Yeah. And then it's once you close that first deal. I mean, for me, it was like probably almost a year of just nonstop reading, networking, educating myself with no progress, but until I closed that first deal. Yep. And that was how long the feedback loop was. It was a whole year. And then even then, it's like, you don't even know if it's going to work, right? <laughs> right. You, just, you just take step one, you close on that first deal. And so I think the key is to do it long enough to where you can prove out the model and get the confidence that it actually works. For sure, yeah. You know? But I think with the short-term rental stuff, it's like you don't need to do a whole year. Like I started on the apartment side. And so I think that has a little bit higher barrier to entry and a little bit more time associated with taking down a first deal. But I think with, you know, arbitrage or taking down a short-term rental, it's not a 12-month timeline, even if even if you're if you go slowly, would you agree? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I would say most people that I work with personally usually are in their first property, whether they're doing arbitrage, buy, or even co-hosting, is usually less than three months. So a lot of people get over-consumed with, you know, how much money do I need to start? And I'm like, well, back up. Like, <laughs> what sh- how much money do you have and then pick a strategy that's most suitable with your budget oh that's so good because you can start you can you know you know if you wait until you think oh i need a hundred thousand dollars to start you may be waiting for years and then someone else over here had nothing to start but they picked the strategy that aligned with that and they got started they're going to be light years ahead of you by the time you're ready to make your first first opportunity come i love sure. that um i get that question often they're like hey like you know what do you think my first deal should be and how should i structure it i was like well Let's figure out, tell me like exactly how much money you have to work with. Do you have a 401k? What's your situation? Do you have an ability to go get a low, no money down loan? What does that look like? And then based off of that, then I can give you the proper response. Um, And my answer is always like, hey, let's figure out how much money you have, you're working with, but also like your ability to get lending. And then let's strategically figure out a way to maximize the most amount of real estate based on your situation. Yeah. You know? Like, don't go dump. For example, if you can, if you can get into a property for 5% down or 3.5% down, don't go dump everything you have into a 25% down mortgage. And then that's the last deal you're going to do. And there's no yeah. value to, to add. For sure. Versus put some into here, take another one, go do a value add deal, cash out, refinance this one. And now it starts snowballing. Yeah. Hey guys, real quick. The only way this podcast grows is if you guys share it and review the show. So if you do find value, if you could take two seconds and drop a five star on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it would mean the world to me. But more importantly, it will help us reach new audiences and help more people build wealth through real estate investing. You have to think about how hard your money is working for you. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's easy to think, oh, I'm just 20, 25% down. That's normal. That's what I'm going to do. It's like, no, 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 there's a lot of other strategies that you can get a much higher rate of return on that starting capital to help you scale faster to get to the point where you can kind of take on bigger deals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always say, like, for me to buy a deal right now, just with where we are in the cycle, and I've kind of structured almost all my deals this way, um, with the exception of a couple. Um, and one of those I got for a no money down loan, so it really didn't matter. But um, for me right now, I'm like, okay, I want to add tremendous value. And then two, I want to be able to, to pick it up at a discount, you know, because I feel like with where we are in the market cycle and the high interest rate environment, and all the volatility out there, I know at least if I pick it up at a discount and I could add tremendous value, that gives me a little bit of a buffer and a cushion for a margin for air should the market continue to soften. And I believe it's going to continue to soften a little bit before it improves. 
Now, on the flip side, I also feel like, and, and Tyler Devereaux said this um, on our podcast last week, he said, if you can find a deal to pencil right now with this high interest rate environment and this higher debt assumptions, he'll do that deal all day because when the rates go back down and cap rates go back down here in a year from now, maybe two years from now, he's like, that deal is going to be prime for a nice exit. And I agree with that. Yeah. Or refinance or cash out refi or something. Um, yes. But that same deal today, when rates go back down to 3%, whenever that is, is not going to be the same deal. You know, I hear often, this usually comes from realtors, but marry the house, date the rate. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, you got to think about that from an investor standpoint. Um, Logan, the VP of my company, he, he talks about it like a, like a seesaw. You're never, you're very rarely, if ever, going to have a moment in time where both prices are low and you're getting great deals and interest rates are at all time lows. Typically, one is high and the other is low. Um, and I tell a lot of people a couple of years ago in 2021, early 2022, when rates were still low, I remember there'd be 50 offers within 24-hour period on a good short-term rental property. Best and final due. Don't even think about having it contingent on inspection, appraisal. People were doing 100 grand over asking. It was ridiculous. It was insane. Just to get a good rate. But, you know, there's harder to cash flow when, you're, when your purchase price is that much higher. So now today, me and my students, we're getting deals under asking price, under appraised value, and getting the seller to comp 20 grand of closing costs, maybe even do a rate buy down. Um, so it's kind of like pick your poison, but I, but I like where your mind's at. I mean, if the way I think about it is if rates go up, I'm going to look back in a year from now and be like, damn, 7% was a good deal, you know? Yeah. But if they go down, I have the opportunity to refinance and then lower the debt service a little bit. And my cash flows higher. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I don't know. I, we'll see. I mean, everyone's speculating at this point, but I, I think the the highest rate environment that we're going to see is is between now and the next six to eight months. Um, and the rumor is they're going to do some cuts next year and some more cuts in 25. You know, if I'm a betting man, I, I think the rates are going to be significantly lower, you know, a year from now and two years from now than they are today. Um, and if that is the case, I'm okay buying right now. I just want to make sure that I don't have a hefty prepayment penalty to yeah. refinance some cheaper debt when the rates go back down. Yeah, that's you a good know? point. What are some markets right now? Because I, I know with the high interest rates, it's harder to find deals to pencil, especially in the short-term rental side. Um, you got a lot of expenses. You got housekeeping, uh, supplies, and all this sort of stuff. And then a lot of these markets are seasonality, mm-hmm. right? So I think it's always important to, um, you know, when you underwrite these short-term rentals, to kind of look at the annual snapshot, not just what is this doing in this given month, yeah. you know? Um, but what are some markets that cash flow good with the higher rates in, in today's climate? So... A lot of the rural markets are small to mid-sized rural markets. They had the highest increase in demand out of all the different types of markets, according to a recent report by AirDNA. And for those that don't know AirDNA, it's a great website, data hub for all short-term rental uh, information. Um, and I found that pretty interesting. And they get the other cool thing about rural markets is they get a lot less investor attention. A lot of investors are focusing on the big cities and the big vacation markets, beaches, mountain lakes. Um, for me, I'm seeing the best return right now in the highest cash flow on mountain areas um, on the east coast with less seasonality so that aren't dependent on a summer swing like a florida panhandle beach you make really good money what end of may through early september but it really dies off hard so i personally don't like hyper seasonal locations although you can do well there i like places like the mountains where hey it's busy for spring break it's busy for summer vacation it's really busy during the holidays and maybe it's quiet for two to three months a year um, so those those tend to give me a little bit more confidence right now. Yeah. 
Um, what are some areas in like the Carolinas or in the Southeast that you like specific markets? Any names you can you can throw? Out? Yeah, yeah. I mean, Asheville's a great market. Um, and I usually caution people: don't try and get focused on finding the perfect market. It's really more about finding a good market and finding the best possible opportunity within that market because you can find good deals in almost any market or to, you know or economic cycle. Um, but the reason I like markets such as the Smokies or Asheville is because all of the major metropolitan areas that are driving distance from there are all growing incredibly fast. Greenville, South Carolina, which is where I live, Raleigh, North Carolina, Charlotte, North Carolina, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Nashville, all just booming and Atlanta too. So where do they all go when they want to go for a quick vacation or family vacation, especially if the economy tanks, people aren't going to take you know, flights into big cities and spend money on concerts, but they will take their family on vacation and take PTO from work because they can go to a destination where it's just driving distance. They pay for the accommodation and they're maybe in nature, you know, so that's why I like mountains and then lake, lakes and beaches too are typically pretty solid. Yeah. Um, and it sounds like these more tertiary areas or rural um, areas that you're alluding to uh, have a little bit less competition um, versus some of these areas like Scottsdale, Nashville oh, that yeah. are, are booming, um, the Smokies, right? There's a lot of competition. And so I, I believe, you know, we're in, we're in areas like Scottsdale and it's like, you know, in order to do good in those markets, you got to bring a really unique mar- uh, product to the marketplace. But it sounds like with some of these areas that you're alluding to, uh, maybe not Asheville. Asheville seems like a, a lot of people talk about that one. But some of the more suburban areas, maybe you don't need to bring a unique property to the marketplace. Is that accurate? Yeah, I would say there's the level of competition is not as steep. You look at Scottsdale, you're right. You have, I mean, this day, like this day and age, you have to have a putting green, a heated pool, crazy game room, maybe catered to bachelorette parties or something, but everyone has those things. So it's harder to have your unique selling proposition in a market that is becoming more competitive or more saturated. So yeah, you're right. And the second thing too, is if you go into some of these rural areas or even some of the traditional vacation markets, beaches, mountains, lakes, they're still operated by these old mom and pop companies and these people that have had homes for decades. Their photos are terrible. They haven't Mm. updated them in 20 years and their marketing is bad and they have no pricing strategy. Some of them don't even list on Airbnb and Verbo. So yeah, the smaller the market, less competition. And if you go in there and have some good amenities, take great photography and market it well, you're probably going to be a big fish in a small pond. Yeah, absolutely. Um, with with the purchase of the management company, I had Patrick on the show um, a little while back, and he he purchased one recently, and he's going through another purchase. Did you see a lot of turnover um, in a lot of clients leave once once the ownership changed? I don't think we've had much turnover at all, actually. Um, I think the, the the key thing there, though, is the owners that sold to us had a very good relationship with all of their homeowners and clients. And we built a very good relationship. Mainly my partner, Elliot, built a very good relationship with the sellers. And so we actually got them to stay on board for about a year as more or less like a business development and maintain some of the relationships that really helped broker our relationship with some of those new homeowners. Um, And then, you know, our team flew down there to meet a lot of those home, some of those homeowners and our current team that we brought in uh, in person, which was really helpful. Um, so nothing really changed. It was more more or less business as usual for the first few months. And now we're making some changes and homeowners are seeing those changes have positive effects on their rental income. What are some of those changes? Um, dynamic pricing for one. Um, I think that's a, a big advantage to purchasing some of these older property management companies that have not adapted and adopted new new software and tech out there. So 
the the company we bought, they were using an old property management software. They were literally manually entering bookings every single time they came in on 115 properties. Wow. Which is nuts. That Especially is during a busy season when they're booked every almost 100% through the summertime. Um, and then no dynamic pricing. So it's, it's really difficult to go in and change day-to-day pricing for 100 plus properties, let alone 10 properties. So a lot, what happens a lot of times these old management companies is they'll just have a flat price through the year or a busy season price and a low season price. And that's not going to help you compete because if you're slightly overpriced, especially if, when demand is low, you're not going to get booked. You have to be more price competitive. And when demand is high and you're getting 100% occupancy, you may think you're crushing it, but you may be leaving an extra 10 grand on the table just in the busy season. Mm-hmm. So by ha- having the dynamic pricing, that was the biggest thing. Um, and like one property owner called uh, my business partner, Elliot, and said, you know, my daily rate's a lot lower in September. Why is that? And he was kind of frustrated. And so we looked at his bookings from last year. He had one day booked for $600 one that night. And he's got like seven grand booked this September. But it's the price is lower, but now we're getting booked. So just... Just implementing some simple, simple software and simple strategies is, is helping them make more money. What's the best way to find a management company like that that's maybe mom and pop and they're they're underperforming? What's the best way to find a company that's looking to, to sell? Working with a broker really helps. You know, a lot of the brokers will focus on the bigger, you know, acquisitions, but I think we you and I were talking about this in the in the break room earlier, but establishing a relationship with one or more good brokers and then they're basically help. They see that we're going to be successful. So they're helping find us smaller companies that make more sense from an acquisition standpoint. It may not be as fruitful for them as the big ones, but if we continue to grow and eventually we want to exit or maybe acquire bigger companies, then we're going to go to them, you know, every time for that, that type of business. Um, so them bringing deals that we would not ordinarily be able to find has been really helpful. And what kind of broker are you alluding to? Like a business broker that, that's transacting this, or these are like brokers that are brokering a bunch of just residential short-term rental They're properties. transacting specifically property management companies. Okay. So yeah, so they their family's been in it forever. I mean, they had they had some massive property management companies down in the panhandle of Florida. I think over like a thousand properties at one point. Um, and then part of the family kept doing that and the one brother and his dad went and started this, this company to help broker these types of deals because they had done several acquisitions themselves back in the day. So I think they saw an opportunity and, and they jumped at it and they've, they've done quite well. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we're currently like exploring avenues in, in ways to um, strategically uh, grow our short-term rental um, management arm. But it's like we're, we're not trying to just take on any property. Like we want to strategically grow it with, you know, we, we know the properties that we manage that are the best use of our time. So it's typically like the more luxury properties that bring in good revenue and then the boutique hotels. Those are a good return on our time. And then, you know, the one-off properties that are in like different markets and stuff like that that don't bring in really strong revenue um, or create um, a lot of back and forth with guests and just maintenance and like older properties have a lot of maintenance issues. Those are the ones we're trying to kind of stay away from moving forward. Um, But I've never thought of the idea of going and picking up another property management company. Are there... I mean, if we go and network with some of these brokers, are there at any given time a lot of property management companies in the country that are for sale? Yeah, yeah, there's actually a decent amount. I mean, it's it's probably not like hundreds at a time, but there's several several that go up for sale, you know, each month at all different sizes. Like, you know, they got the Vacasas of the world that were on a buying spree for the past couple of years. Now they're kind of weaning off a little bit. I think they they bought too much, uh, but there were some major acquisitions that happened. And then there's all the smaller ones too and everything in between. So there's good opportunity. Something I noticed that I thought was very interesting, 
um, that we learned when we were looking to buy our first company and continue to grow is that what what makes a company more uh, attractive to buy? Because eventually, if we want to exit, we need to make ourselves more attractive. So like you said, having like-kind properties is helpful because if you're all over the place and types of property, it may not be attractive for a company that's focused solely on like three, four plus bedroom properties that are newer or whatever. Mm-hmm. The other thing that was interesting was home team, we were growing nationwide. Now we have a higher concentration in the Southeast, but we manage properties in Scottsdale, Seattle, the Northeast, up in New Hampshire, like all over the place. Um, a lot of companies look to grow in a specific market. So that made us think, okay, maybe we should focus on a couple key markets, you know, instead of just going nationwide from the get go. And as you get to more properties, it, it really is nice to have a central hub of resources or eventually employees, maybe a little home base. Yeah. Um, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Um, yeah, Cause I guess when you buy in a management company, let's say there's, there's a hundred in, in, in the portfolio, chances are you're going to inherit some properties that you're like, probably don't want. Right. Um, but then you can always cut those ties after the fact if, if you, if it's yeah. not aligned, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. Yeah. That's interesting to uh, think about. I didn't realize that you could just go find a broker that would sell those. Where, where, where's the best place to find these brokers? I don't even remember how I, I got connect, just mutual connections. Um, it's actually the CEO of Wheelhouse, which is a, a dynamic pricing engine. Um, oh, that's true. Cause they probably have other clients. Like, yeah, so, well, he, he's st- the guy, Andrew, I forget his last name at the moment, super, super nice guy, like very friendly with his time and, and very eager to make connections where possible, which I think has helped him be where he is today. But um, I was talking with him one day and he's like, is there anything I do to help you? And I just mentioned, oh, we're thinking about growing our property management company. He's like, well, if you're ever going to get in like the buy and sell acquisition side, like I know a great person and connected me with this guy named Jacoby and that's who helped us eventually with this acquisition. So I think networking is, is massive. You know, that's where you're going to be able to broker really great relationships that can lead to, to you know, to more, I suppose. Yeah. How, do you, how are most of these management companies valued? Um, based on EBITDA. So, and, and the bigger you grow, usually the multiple is higher, we found. So like smaller companies, typically like three to five X EBITDA. And then once you, I forget what the actual number is but once you get over a certain threshold you start to flirt with like the five to eight or even 10x ebitda just because it's it's less risk at scale yeah i think so um lower expense ratio all that yeah yeah so it, it is very interesting to see that so i think for us focusing on some of the smaller ones can help us grow in chunks and it's cheaper to buy and usually those ones they're you know smaller companies that are older mom and pops if you will they they're easier to add value to and instantly boost operating income yeah, that's interesting, man. I'm definitely have to look into it and um, and see what that that looks like because that sounds like a, a great way to scale. I mean, you've done it both ways, right? You went heavy on the organic and social to try to grow it, and you did, and then you guys are picking up other companies right now. So, what what is the easier of the two paths? I think they're both great, right? I mean, I think buying is a way to expedite that process substantially. Um, it takes less grind, takes less marketing, um, and like. You look at Cody Sanchez, who I'm sure you're familiar with, and she does, you know, I buy boring businesses. And it really makes a lot of sense. If you can buy a business basically at a discount to what you're going to be able to take the operating income to, the opportunity is is huge. So I think buying is an easier way to scale. The only limiting factor is if you don't have the capital, you're going to have to go raise money or partner with someone on. Someone or get some on. seller finance. Or get some seller finance. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, 
I was actually on Biz by Sell last night, just kind of browsing and I was just looking at like the different like seller finance. There's so many seller finance companies out there in the in the country right now and in all markets and all these different spaces, like things that you can't even think of um, are out there. Just, there's just so much opportunity, I think, changing hands right now, especially yeah. as these, these baby boomers retire. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, um, so dude, so what, what's next for you? I mean, you're doing all this stuff, like, like out of all the things that you're doing right now and you got the coaching business, like what is the one thing that, that gets you most excited right now? Honestly, it's none of the business that gets me the most excited. It's, um, like I said earlier, my wife and I were very aligned on what we wanted out of life and what our, it's not so much the end product, but really what type of, um, day-to-day lifestyle we wanted to adopt. So I, I'm, trying to be very careful on how I spend my time because it's very easy to get over-consumed when you're in hyper-growth mode. You know, there's a fine balance, in my opinion, um, of how much I want to spend on growth and building business and earning more money versus, oh, I'm pretty comfortable where I'm at. Should I just spend as much time with my family and my daughter as I can? So I'm kind of trying to balance. Uh, it's tough at times, but that's probably what I'm most focused on is that and then just continuing to to invest in and really grow the businesses with I don't want to say as little effort as possible but as little of my own time input as possible to each of them so leveraging resources um, to be able to grow those yeah it's all about input and then output what does a typical day look like for you now uh usually I'm hanging out with my wife and my daughter till 10 or 11 and then I'll have maybe a coaching call you know, a couple of other business calls, maybe some, you know, social media stuff, whether it's like recording or just chatting with my team, try and get a workout in, usually go for like a one or two mile walk, one or two mile walk with my wife, our dogs and our daughter each day. So it's pretty low key. Um, I like to golf. I like to hang on our boat on the lake. Um, So it's it's a pretty good balance, honestly. Um, Yeah. What does your team look like? I know you got a few different uh, businesses, but um, overall, what is what does your entire team look like? So this is something I struggled with early on. Um, going from solopreneur to entrepreneur mm-hmm. is a huge jump, in my opinion. It's something I personally wish I did sooner. It's like under the mindset of if you want it done right, do it yourself type of thing. You have to hand off the keys to the castle to somebody else to run it as good or better than you eventually. So um, I hired Logan, who I mentioned before, who was my first ever coaching client to help me with coaching. And then he helped with sales. And then we built a sales team. So we have, I don't know, probably seven salespeople and then a couple of business development reps. And then we have three client success managers that manage um, all the clients that come in the door on the coaching business. Um, and then on the property management side, it's me and my business partner, Elliot, with I think we have like 12 or 13 full-time employees. And then a couple of VAs, several VAs that help run like guest communication and stuff like that. And then Summer Led, we have Bree and Jordan who run the day-to-day. Um, and then we have a design manager, uh, project manager, one other role, and then a bunch of designers. So it's kind of like that trickle down effect where we're all just trying to be, you know, steering the ship per se and doing less of the paddling ourselves. Yeah, that's good, man. Um, I think it's always a fine balance. Like, you know, as you grow, it's like, okay, what do I delegate? What do I not delegate? And, you know, I always try to do the things that I feel um, are the things that, that I like doing. And I feel like, you know, is, is something that I actually feel like I'm good at. Right. And then ideally you want to delegate the things that you're not good at things that you don't enjoy doing. Um, but it's always a fine line, man. So I'm kind of with you on that regard. Um, how are you treating the, um, the content? I do follow you on social. You're, you're pumping out a lot of content. I think you're pumping out a lot more. Yeah. So how do you, how do you treat the content? Do you have like a day? Cause for us, we do, we do like a lot of meetings on Mondays and Tuesdays. 
Um, and then Wednesday is kind of like our content day. So we typically record multiple podcasts on Wednesdays. And if we do any like sidebar content, we'll typically do it on a Wednesday as well. That way it's just like once a week and then we can kind of stack it. Yeah. Um, but how do, you, how do you approach the content? So I used to just do it ad hoc right on my phone, especially short form, um, which I felt like I excelled at. But it got a little bit overwhelming to keep up with. So I, tr- I eventually hired a social media manager um, who'll actually come to my house or meet me somewhere and we'll knock out either one or two days a month. We'll knock out a bunch of content together and then he'll go edit and post it for me. So I was doing it all myself and my strength was not recording. My strength was definitely not editing, you know. Um, so that gave me a lot of time back. Um, and then I also outsourced um, to an agency on Instagram too um, that helps, helps decide what to post, how to curate it, um, drive growth to the channel and stuff like that. So um, yeah, usually we try and do like bulk bulk recording a couple times yeah. a month, and that's really it. But I, the podcast is smart though because you get to meet all these great people, and then you have long form content, you have podcasts, you could chop it up, and you have all these amazing little bits and pieces that you can post out. So yeah. kudos no, to for you, sure. Man. Thanks, man. Um, and you do a lot of Twitter posts. Yeah, and you come up with all those? No, 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 oh. no. Okay, so, who comes with those? I mean, all all of it is is more or less stuff that I do or say or come up with, but mm-hmm. it's in collaboration actually with the team that I work with um, for my Instagram channel. So, you know, we'll come up with different ideas and threads and then they send to me, I edit and review them. And then they, once I green light, they have the freedom to post. And believe it or not, Twitter, I, I think I get on Twitter maybe once every month or two. <laughs> yeah, I need to be a little bit more strategic there. Um, but we actually were using Twitter as threads that we could repost as threads on Instagram, like as a swipe through. Um, and that was before Instagram threads came out, but we still just use Twitter as like that yeah. main, that main post. We do the same thing. It, like for me, I'm like, okay, I actually come up with the stuff, but it like, it takes like five minutes to come up with it. And then I screenshot it and it could go out on Instagram um, and all these other platforms or whatever, but they do really well. I mean, people love, cause sometimes when you put out like a, a 60 second reel or, or TikTok, it's like, that's a lot for someone to watch, but if it's just like a short little like tidbit that can like provide some sort of value with uh, to them, and it takes five seconds to read, like sometimes those do really well. Isn't that funny that I just listening to you say that sixty seconds? That's a lot for someone. Yeah, I know it's, it's crazy, crazy about, this day right? and age to think about that. But um, yeah, the t- attention spans have just shrunk dramatically. If you don't have someone's attention in two seconds, forget it. Yeah, you know, it. it's so it's so challenging. So that hook is so important. The hook is so important. Like, you know, we could do like the best video, but if that first uh, three seconds is is not the right three seconds, it's not going to do good. Yeah, 100%. you know, no one will actually make it to the end. Yeah, but yeah. also people like different types of content to consume, right? So some people prefer the threads they like to read or swipe through. Some people are more visual, and then some people like videos where maybe they're not even focusing much what's on the screen, but they're listening. So I think mixing it up is important because it kind of caters to different um, different demographic in your audience. Yeah, I, I think I agree with that too. Um, so I don't know we're always playing with it, and I always tell people like if you're not posting every day, it's hard to really know like what the algorithm is doing. Um, but like since we brought Parker on the team, it's been great because he's in here full time with us, and so you know, he does all the video videography stuff. He does the podcast, um, but when we're chopping up these like clips it's so much better because now we can like strategically pull certain clips. And sometimes we might pull, you know, a clip from the beginning of the podcast and we might mesh it with a clip from the end of the podcast, but it looks like one little yeah. short clip. Um, and sometimes you need that in order to, you know, have that pop that's going to, you know, get a lot of engagement. So that's been really cool. Um, before he came on board, we were outsourcing 
And so it was, it was difficult for us to relay exactly what we wanted. Now he's in office. I can just like walk over to the computer and take a look and we can just like, okay, let's, let's sidebar, let's pull this here. Yeah. And then we're good. Makes things more efficient for sure. Way more efficient. One thing too, that I, that really helped me is before I, you know, was working with a couple different specific agencies or bring in, you know, the social media manager in house was I was thinking I need to create a reel. And then if I were going to go create a long form video or a thread or something, I had to create a different topic. But it's way easier and more efficient to just have the one topic that you have as a reel. You just write down basically what's on the reel as a thread. And then you can also use that as a post. And then you can also use it as a story. You just have to use different images and different text. Say, say that again. You can have one one topic or concept. Like mm-hmm. Let's say that's in a thread. And then you can make a reel out of it. And a oh, talking yes, head. Yes. And then you can also make it a post or a carousel. And then you can also make it a story. Mm-hmm. And you just post it at different times. And it just... It's the same message, but it's just a different way to consume it because yes. different people are going to be more inclined to read stories. They're not the same people that are necessarily going to watch the whole 60 second reel. It's not the same people who are going to spend time swiping through a thread. So by reposting it, you're hitting it on multiple different times, especially if there's a call to action. That's really how you get people in your DMs and, and you, you know, you can help scale whatever business you're trying to scale. Mm. And in addition to that, I think, you know, it's a topic that you know people are interested in. Like if it does well in the Twitter post, mm-hmm. then you know, okay, people actually like this topic. Let me let me shoot a, a forty five second reel on it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, and you already sure. know it's going to do good. Yeah, it's a great it's a great test, right? Um, yes. Especially if you're ever going to run an ad or even pay to post on other channels like IG shoutouts. Is you you test organic one way or another, and if it does well, then that's kind of your proof of concept. Hey, it's worth paying for to mm-hmm. you know get a broader reach. And that's one thing that um, Alex Ramosi does really well of. So he he will just fire off like probably like eight to 10 Twitter posts every single day on his Twitter. And then he'll use the ones that are really good, that do really good. And then he'll repurpose those on like his Instagram and these other platforms, but he'll test them on Twitter. And so, you know, out of every 20, the best ones he'll put on his Instagram. That's That's why everyone that he puts on his Instagram is like fire because he's already tested it. You know what I mean? That's so smart. It is very smart. And some of the big YouTube guys I've heard do insane levels of testing. And they might even have dummy channels i don't know if it's true or not like the mr beast of the world where they'll they'll go test videos or types of videos um before ever posting on their main channel how do you test a a youtube video i want to say they post a similar type of video on another channel i don't know if that's how they Mm. do it but they do a lot of different like qa testing before they actually go live with a specific video and i guess it makes sense that why they're all just bangers you know it's actually very smart yeah I wonder if you could create like, um, I mean, I guess anyone could do this. Um, like, let's say that you created like a, a phantom Instagram account and you grew 10% of the similar audience that you already have on your main account. And then you just test like all these videos throughout the day. And the ones that actually take off of the algorithm, those are the ones you actually put yeah. out on your main. Yeah. It'd be similar. Yeah. That's interesting. With all those bots out there and it's like, <laughs> you don't really need bots to put out a fake control. one. <laughs> God, they're so out of control. Instagram's the worst. They need to get a handle on that. What I've noticed though recently is uh, maybe this is as of the last two weeks is a lot of those like bot comments have like completely like tapered back, which is kind of nice. Really? I haven't even looked. I need yeah. to go check it out. But it's, it was annoying for a while. There'd be like 400 comments and two would be from people and the other yeah, 398 would be I from know. bots. So and annoying. People that follow you get annoyed because they're like, oh, I'm, some people are, are in the comments. Like they're curious about the different co- questions being asked and they can't even get to like the meat of a conversation because they just see all this junk. Mm-hmm. So I'm glad. Hopefully they do get a good handle on it. Yeah, it sounds like they have over the last couple of weeks. So it'll be interesting to kind of see how that plays out. Um, but I agree with you, man. I think, um, you know, content is such a big piece of 
real estate and entrepreneurship. And, you know, we were talking before we started recording, you know, you're not doing a lot of paid stuff anymore, but you did test it. Um, I think organic is the way to do it if, if, if you can, if you know how to do it. Yeah, for sure. And you can, there are ways to pay and invest in organic that a lot of people don't think of. Like you can work with an agency that can help, help, help you decide what to post, how to post, when to post, or even do it for you. Um, there, you can also pay to have shout outs and other channels from your organic content that does well, like I said before. So it's more or less like we call it ads on an Instagram, but you're basically running an ad of yourself of an organic post on another channel. And that just gets people to say, Oh, that's interesting. I'm interested in this person and what they have to say. I'm going to follow their page. But then they follow your page. Most people follow you forever, you know, um, versus an ad is like you might have a one hit wonder, but then you got to recreate that ad, recreate, mm-hmm. recreate, right. repay, it repay, repay. Exactly. So I think organic is kind of the gift that keeps giving. And there's a lot more trust built up. If you're ever going to sell a product or build a business, there's a lot more trust with an audience that has been following you for a year or more than someone who just saw a 10 second ad on YouTube. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more power. Where, to where do you think social media is going to go, you know? three to five years from now, do you think we're going to see a bunch of different stuff going down or is it going to be fairly similar? I feel like it's going to be pretty similar. I just feel like attention spans have gotten so low. Um, I don't know. Short form has just been king the last several years, but I see a lot of people getting back into YouTube and longer form content, maybe not like 10, 20 minutes, but like that three to five minute range that they get a little bit more value extracted out of it. But yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I don't know. Even before TikTok, I was like, what else can you create? Mm-hmm. You know, or before before Snapchat came out, like, what else can you create? But someone keeps coming up with another idea of how to look at a video or a photo. I don't know what else, what else someone will come up with. I'm sure something will come out. Yeah. And I, I'm curious, is, are there going to be more platforms? Are there going to be less? Um, yeah. I, one thing I do believe is that uh, there's going to be less eyeballs on, on traditional television and more eyeballs on, on cell phones. Yeah, I have no doubt about that. Yeah, and even in, in education, people people when they need to learn something, they just pull up YouTube. When, when my wife wants to book travel for like Switzerland, for example, she just spent hours on TikTok, and she got she got everything she needed to to basically build our entire itinerary from TikTok, which is nuts. Because we're you know before you'd have to sift through blogs and spend hours you know getting through that stuff. TikTok, it's like ten seconds into a video that looks cool or that doesn't look cool. Should I add it to my itinerary? Where is it? Mm-hmm. And the craziest part is like sometimes you don't even have to seek it out. You just like start talking about like, hey, like let's take a trip out to, you know, Santorini, Greece and <laughs> something here is something. And next thing you know, you turn on your, your, your feed and, yeah. and you're getting cookied uh, Santorini, Greece stuff. Yeah. yeah That's the craziest, craziest part. kind of creepy. Yeah. For better or worse, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you, so you guys do a lot of traveling. What, what um, like how do you guys typically plan these trips? I mean, these are, you said you took a, a one year RV trip. Yeah. Yeah. So my wife's a planner and I'm more fly by the seat of my pants a little bit. So she wanted like the whole RV trip plan. I'm like, Jill, this, this isn't going to work. Like, that. Mm-hmm. like there's going to be some, we need an extra day here. We need to leave here. So that was more planning about 10 to 14 days in advance. Um, and then we would usually just figure out where we're going to sleep the day of, um, had a couple of different apps to figure out where we, we were most of the time off grid, which was great. Had solar. But yeah, for our other bigger trips, usually we, we plan a little bit more of an itinerary with, with flexible time within each day. So we'll usually have like one main thing we want to do. We're very active. And then we leave, you know, the afternoon or the morning open to go explore and do whatever. Yeah. I think that's the beauty of real estate investing is it allows us to go and travel and see the world, um, which is, which is massive. 
for me personally, um, I don't like to plan a whole lot when I'm traveling. I like to just uh, kind of see where the wind takes me. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll book a trip. It's typically a one-way ticket. I'm usually booking it like and committing like within that same week, sometimes only two or three days prior. And then I go and um, I'll just stay in that, that first city until I get bored. And then once I get bored, I'm like, okay, where am I going to go, gonna go next? And I'll just kind of see where the wind takes me. Um, because I kind of feel like if I have this itinerary and, and I have all these cities planned, well, what if I meet some cool people and they're going to go here? Now I can't go with them. Yeah. Right. And so I always say like, man, there's no better feeling than to, you know, wake up every day and be like, wow, like I can go wherever I want to go. Yeah. It's like the true, like ultimate feeling of yeah. freedom, you know? Yeah. Complete unilateral control of your time mm-hmm. is like the most liberating thing ever. You can make all the money in the world, but if you don't have control over how you spend each day, yeah, it's worthless to me. Agreed. Last year, I was able to do like six weeks, which is really nice. Um, this year, I, I I wasn't able to do. Did you go to Hawaii this year already? I think I heard you I did, talking about that. I did go that. for a little bit. How was um, it? I did go to Hawaii a couple weekends ago. It was a quick trip. Flew out on a Friday morning flight. Was back in uh, on Sunday night, so it was quick. But dude, it was the the most beautiful island that I've ever been to out in Hawaii. Kauai? Yeah, yeah, it was so sick. My wife and I did that uh, probably. Actually, on our van trip, we stopped in LA and flew over for a couple of weeks. But okay. Hawaii is unreal. It's like, I mean, it's where a lot of Jurassic Park, I think, was filmed. Yeah. But it's, it's just all out there. Very chill island, too, compared to the others, like mm-hmm. Maui. Um, so yeah, I, I'd done like uh, Oahu, Maui, and the Big Island. And then this was my first time to Kauai. And dude, it was it just everything's green. Like you alluded to, Jurassic Park was filmed there. Um, you get the Nepali coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, you get the Waikamea Canyon, which is like the Grand Canyon of Hawaii. Gorgeous, did like a helicopter tour um, and stayed a spot like on the beach. And dude, we found this uh, little hole in the wall called Tip Top. And it was like a little hole in the wall breakfast joint. And it was like a 20 unit motel, like a rundown motel. And at the bottom of it, they had this like cafeteria style, like um, like just diner. And you go in there and they had the best uh, fried rice loco moco. It was so freaking good, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's probably my favorite part about traveling is honestly, it's not always like the cool activity but some of the best memories are just getting like dumped into a new culture and kind of embracing it and the food mm-hmm. i love i'm a foodie yeah just experiencing that and um you know getting to know someone local and learning about what their day-to-day life is like and figuring out there's a lot of similarities but there's also a lot of differences too so it's, it's pretty awesome yeah and in addition to that i think like whenever i travel like my perspective always changes you know, and even if it's a short trip like that, or if I, especially if I go to like another country and really explore, um, my perspective changes so much and I come back and I'm like, just, um, I feel like I'm a better version of myself because oh, yeah. of it. Yeah. hundred you know? percent. Yeah. I think, I think you have a different level of gratitude for, for what, what you have here, you know, um, and what you have in your own life. You know, there's, there's places in the country that are similar to America and there's places that are far from it. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think you definitely have a different level of appreciation for for things. What what does your family say like after you know all this the, over the last four years? I mean, you've built a, a a really impressive thing with everything that you're doing, and you're helping a lot of folks along the way. Um, like, what do your what do your parents think of all the stuff that you've done? Because you know you started off with a day job, you and your your wife, and now you guys are doing all this. Yeah, I think at first it was, you know, they never like disapproved, but they were a little skeptical and like, oh, oh, you're doing that, you know, it's. I don't think you should be doing that. I can yeah. kind of sense it. But after the first like couple of years, it was more of like a raising the eyebrows, like, holy shit, like, really? Mm-hmm. Like, wow. And so that's really all it kind of gives me 
Validation. Val, you know, a little validation and, I don't know, a little pat on the back. Um, just to, I don't know. I mean, they're proud of what we're doing and happy for us, which is like the biggest thing. Yeah. What's your biggest takeaway looking back, you know, over the last four years and then what you were doing before? Um, and then obviously now with all the growth, I mean, you're seeing life through a different light and a different lens. What was your biggest takeaway as you look back over the last uh, four years? I think adopting more of an abundance mindset. Um, I feel like my, my mind and everyone's mind is typically limited to, to some extent, you know, and you don't know any better. And, and honestly, even in this past year, we were talking about this earlier, it's like I've learned so many new things and the businesses have like 10 X in this last year and gotten to levels that I never even thought were possible. I didn't even know existed, to be honest. So um, I think just getting started and then just putting one foot after another and taking chances, taking risks and meeting people, getting in the same room as people that are, are way ahead of you um, is, is critical. But one thing that changed my life, honestly, it's kind of silly, but reading uh, Cashflow Quadrant, which is more or less yeah. a sequel to Rich Dad Poor Dad. That one hit, hit me too really hard when yeah, I read it. for sure. And like for those that haven't read it, it's a great book. A little monotonous like a lot of Kiyosaki books are, but a couple like the golden nuggets for me was, you know, you're on the left side of the quadrant, employee self-employed, you're trading time for money. If you want to have more time freedom and more or less infinite scale, you have to transition to the BRI side, business uh, or investor. Um, and the second thing was addressing risk. It was like investing is risky, taking chance on yourself is risky, but what if I don't? It might feel safe and secure, but I don't want to get to age 60, 70 or on my deathbed and be like, damn, I wish I tried. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I think it's Jeff Bezos with the regret minimalization framework. You heard that? No. Anytime he has a big decision to make, he thinks like 20 or 40 years ahead. And he thinks like, would I regret not doing this? Mm. Or, or vice versa, like would I regret doing this and so he just tries to minimize future regret and it helps like make big decisions seem a little bit smaller and then he just makes a decision that's so good that's that's really good i'm gonna start using that you know i, I think everything that you just mentioned hits home with me because you know i got started around the same time that you did and you know i i think as you grow you know more and more opportunities start to present themselves um things start happening that you didn't even think were possible and the best part is, it's like, man, we're, we're still young. And like, I tell the team all the time, I'm like, man, this is just the beginning. Like we are just getting started, you know? And, and to me, that's, that's exciting. Oh yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. Who knows, man? It'll be, it's crazy. I mean, it, you, I'm sure you talked to, like you had Cardone on, mm-hmm. right? Long ago. Mm-hmm. I mean, you ask him, you know, even like five, 10 years ago, how much he's come just in that time period, let alone when he was 20 years old. Yeah. So it's kind of wild to and think he's 65. that. 65. And he's still going hard, you know, um, which is awesome to see. It's, it's, it's inspiring. Yeah. Yeah. Well, anyways, my man, dude, I appreciate you taking the time, dude, to come out, man. I'm super inspired just by like everything that you're doing in the space. I know all the folks that um, know you have, have spoke very highly of you, man. And um, I'm excited to kind of follow along your journey, dude. Yeah, likewise. It's it a great pleasure to be here. Yeah, appreciate likewise. It. Listeners, thanks for tuning in. We'll see you in the next one. Peace.